Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. This episode of With Friends Like These is brought to you by Ritual. Traditional multivitamins aren't doing women any favors, so Ritual reimagined one from the ground up. The result, Essential for Women, two daily capsules made with the nine essential nutrients that most women lack. So I do love my Ritual vitamins. You probably have heard elsewhere, and certainly from me, that they are minty, which I do not know why other vitamins didn't figure out that that would be an attractive thing for vitamins, that they don't taste chalky and like um, like a bad sweet tart. Uh, they actually just have a minty flavor that you don't chew them, but they have this just nice scent and, and mild flavor. Uh, and it makes them, you know, more attractive to take. Uh, I don't forget them as often as I forget other vitamins because, you know, in the morning you want something minty sometimes. And, of course, they are good for you. Um, I can't speak to long-term effects, but I have noticed that my nails are stronger. My hair is maybe growing a little bit faster, which I think is is one of the benefits of these kinds of vitamins, pretty sure. Someone asked me if I was taking prenatal vitamins, so that must be a good sign. I'm not taking prenatal vitamins, though. What do they have in them? From D3 to omega-3, Ritual Essential for Women fills the gaps in a woman's diet, all with a fresh minty flavor and no fishy aftertaste. For those of us thinking about it, trying and expecting Ritual Essential Prenatal. Oh, wow, I didn't even know that was going to be in here, but they have them. Ritual Essential Prenatal is conceived to deliver, oh, that's clever, the essential nutrients from DHA to folate that a woman needs at every stage. All of Ritual's ingredients and their sources are 100% out there for the whole world to see. And Ritual's easy to start, easy to snooze your subscription service so that you can have all the essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month for just a dollar a day, whether you're living life or creating it. Why not add some good-looking science to your daily routine? Visit ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. That's ritual.com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. I have two guests on the show this week. One of them is Derek Black. The name might be a little familiar. More about that later. He is a former white nationalist, and not just any white nationalist. He's the son of the man that started Stormfront.com. David Duke was his godfather. When he was a kid, he started a webpage for the white children of the world. He had a radio show that he preached white nationalism from. He started a conference that was attended by the likes of Richard Spencer. And then 
In 2010, he went away to college. And in 2013, he renounced his white nationalist beliefs. What happened to him during his two years in college was the subject of a story by my other guest, Eli Saslow. He wrote about it for the Washington Post, and that's what you may remember. It was in October of 2016, and the story went viral. It outlined Derek's journey from white nationalist to being an honest-to-God, really, social justice warrior. And in part, it had to do with the time that Derek spent at that hippy-dippy school in Florida, New College. And in part, it had to do with his remarkable relationship with a remarkable young woman. Her name is Allison, and we discuss her a little bit in our conversation. They are still together, by the way. At the time, I think that story was grist for an all-too-familiar narrative about how we well-meaning white people should deal with racists, that we should reach out to them, we should teach them, we should break bread with them and show them the error of their ways. But the two years that Eli spent reporting out Derek's story bring to life something far more complicated and compelling And the enduring message of his story may be that there is no one right way to confront hate, but it must be confronted. Eli and Derek and I talk about that. We talk about the sanitized language of white nationalism that Derek promoted and perfected and that he now sees echoed by Donald Trump. We also talk about the perils of letting the story of a white nationalist conversion overshadow the lived experience of those people oppressed by white nationalism. We talked a lot, like I am now, so I will stop. Coming right up, my conversation with Eli Saslow and Derek Black about Eli's new book, Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist. So welcome to the show. Just for our podcast audience can get to know your voices, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, Derek, go first. Hi, I'm Derek Black. And I'm Eli Saslow. As someone who is an explicit white nationalist, explicit racist, I wonder how you see everyday racism, uh, microaggressions and people talking about safe spaces. There's a part of me that wonders if that seems like really kind of trivial. Like, no, I've seen real racism, you know. Uh, what you're talking about is not as important. But at the same time, I know at New College, those things were incredibly important. How do, how do you see these acts of like everyday racism in, in your life today? No, I think growing up in white nationalism made me far more aware of how important those things are. Uh, casual racism is the fuel that makes extremist white nationalism burn. Uh, casual racism is the sort of belief that the, that gun violence is because of those people and those people aren't like us. And white nationalists look at that and they see that as, as their potential recruits. You know, they're not looking for extremists. They don't want the, the fringe of society. They're looking for people who talk about how I'm not a racist, but don't you think this affirmative action stuff has gone too far? Like they're looking for stuff that is held by millions of people and people don't even question 
a lot of times don't even question how, what the impact of having some of these casual, casual racist assumptions are. But white nationalists look at that and they see that as a stepping stone to try to ramp up a racist belief to a point where you're actually talking about it in racial terms, where you're actually saying, no, it's not uh, some assumption about poverty. It's actually because those people are just like that. Like that's what white nationalists look at explicitly and uh, they try to make those conversations more extreme, much worse. Uh, they try to grow their own movement by building upon that. And so growing up looking for those conversations, I think, makes me even more aware of the importance of having these quieter, smaller conversations with people before they have gotten whipped up into something more extreme, uh, because I can see what the consequences are if you don't intercede before that happens? I think one of the one of the really big realizations for me um, in reporting this book was how widespread uh, some of these really pernicious and you know more subtle racist ideas are. Um, I kept coming upon this statistic again and again that um, is sort of hard to believe, but it's been tested out many times, which is that about a third of white people in this country believe that they experience more discrimination, more prejudice than people of color or Jews, which is wildly off base by every statistical measure that we have. It's just not true. Um, but the fact that a third of white people in this country have this false sense of grievance, it gives these racist ideas real mainstream purchase. Um, and I think that's why we've seen the power of this rhetoric continue to spread. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the most upsetting things for me about the Trump era has been people who I know who I thought of as, let's say, reasonable conservatives um, becoming emboldened in in talking about race. I actually used to be really good friends with Tucker Carlson, believe it or not. Mm. And his transformation has been like personally upsetting to me. Um, and And maybe that gets us to sort of something about the book and and your story in general that I'm curious about, which is that I think looking at it, if you, if you didn't actually read the book, you would see it as kind of a, the story of our time writ large, uh, and, and, and has a hopeful note to it, which is that there's this person who had these really repellent beliefs who then changed. And I feel like there's sort of this weird messaging on the top line, that is that the thing that enabled the change was like the open hand in the community. That it was the fact that people, you know, went ahead and welcomed you into their lives, even though you were a white nationalist. Like, and I, I, I wonder if that's what people are going to kind of think is the takeaway here, that how we should deal with the racists in our lives is to, you know, talk reasonably with them. Do you, do you think that's, that's actually what happened with you? I, I think that it's a really popular interpretation of what happened to me. And I sort of worry that it's the wrong takeaway because the experience that I had was that I was on that campus, uh, this very liberal, liberal arts college with 800 students for a whole semester before they knew anything about my background, before they knew that I had grown up in the leadership of white nationalism and that I was still doing a radio show from campus every morning. And I didn't talk about it. And I got to know people. I had classes with them. It was, uh, wasn't the first time that I had done anything with a person of color or, or hung out with a Jewish person, but it was the first time that I was, um, you know, peers. We were in a space and I realized over time that this is not going to be 
okay like it's been in other every other space I've been in in my life that when they find out that I'm advocating white nationalism, it's not going to be like it was every other time where they would say, well, that's unpleasant, but we'll just talk about other things, that this was a community that was not going to accept it. And they didn't. When when I was outed on the student email forum, it was thousands of posts condemning my beliefs, saying that I was making their lives worse, that this was against the values of the community, that I was factually wrong. It was it was just raw, pure denunciation by people who I'd had classes with, who I knew how smart they were. I knew a lot about their lives. And that was the context for why I accepted the invitation to go to uh, Matthew's Shabbat dinners and why I ended up having conversations with, with Allison for two years about uh, what is the evidence for my belief system. It was the fact that there was this community that I really respected and, and uh, you know, loved in a lot of ways that was just outraged and had no qualms about saying how terrible what my beliefs were. And it started out with me wanting to know maybe if they were misunderstanding or if there was something they thought I believed that I didn't believe and if there was some way to clarify that. And it ended up with me accepting that they were, they were right. I was making their lives worse and I was not caring about how that impacted them. I think we sometimes have this idea, uh, particularly right now, on, on the left in the country um, that that sort of when you confront uh, hateful speech and hateful ideas, um, you you must either do one of two things, which is like resist civil resistance or try for some kind of outreach, some sort of civil discourse. Um, and we act as if that's this really binary choice. Um, the truth is, I think in Derek's situation, from spending time with all of these people who impacted his thinking, both of those things were absolutely necessary and they actually worked together. And the real outrage that Derek experienced sort of made him reconcile for one of the first times um, with how how terrible and hurtful these ideas were in the eyes of his peers in this community where he respected people. Um, and then uh, that also opened him up to these invitations and conversations that began to happen. Um, you know, there, there are so many different ways to go about trying to change somebody's ideas. Um, and, and, you know, I think Derek's story is a demonstration of a lot of them. Um, there were students who shut down the school in protest of what he was saying. There were students who armed themselves with the facts of racial science, which, by the way, are universally on the side of the anti-racist, which is comforting to know, um, and debated Derek on, on, on IQ scores and things like that. And then there were students who just decided that they were going to try to build a relationship with Derek um, and not build a case against him, but people of color and Jewish students on campus who thought maybe if he started spending time with them, he would begin seeing past his prejudices and and begin seeing the humanity and the people that he was making friends with. Um, so, you know, I think the one thing that nobody, almost nobody on that campus decided to do was nothing. Like they all chose to invest themselves and, and to try through one of these ways to do something. And I think that for me was the lesson that I took from it. Like they invested themselves, they, they tried. I think that's a really beautiful observation that everyone did something, that they didn't ignore it. Uh, Cause I, you know, this show deals a lot with people who are in relationships uh, with those who disagree, they disagree with. And a lot of times, yeah, everyone thinks it's a binary choice or that it's, there's always one or the other. And I, from talking to people and from my own life experience, it seems like, Every situation is different, right? And it's always a question of like what you yourself can tolerate that day, what you can put up with, uh, and also who that person is and who that person is to you. Like I was reading this book 
which I do think you do a great job of, of, of showing the range of reactions and emphasizing that kind of each different kind of reaction was important in, in Derek's journey. But I kind of walked away from it thinking, far from being kind of an example of like how to treat the, the racist in your life to get them to change their minds, it was just the story of how to make Derek Black change his mind, right? Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think sometimes people have asked, like, okay, so so turn this into sort of a how-to guide, um, right? Like, you know, and in some ways, I think yes, the fact that Derek, uh, who was the future heir to the white nationalist movement in the United States, was able to go through this transformation and end up on the other side as like a uh, anti-racist um, who's investing himself in and trying to fight back against this ideology, that is. If he can change his mind, that does give me real hope that there's there's possibility for personal transformation for people who have much less far to go. Um, but also, his transformation was remarkably unique. I mean, it took several years of investment and relationship building from all of these people in his lives. Um, you know, and I think you're exactly right that it's how how we can impact other people depends mostly on our relationship to them. And, um, you know, Derek and I have laughed sometimes about like the simple conclusion that, you know, what you should do is just invite uh, a neo-Nazi over to dinner and then, um, and then everything will change. And, um, you know, if you don't have a relationship with somebody uh, and if they don't, if they don't trust you at all, it's very unlikely that your conversations with them are going to impact their thinking. And um, so, you know, for people in our lives who are close to and who we have well-rounded relationships with, then I think these sort of difficult conversations can make a real impact. And, um, you know, if, if you don't know somebody, uh, for the most part, you have to find a different way to go about it, whether that's through, you know, protest, civil resistance, um, or starting to try to build a relationship. I, I think it really depends who the p- person is in your life who you're trying to change. I think I'd also emphasize that there was a, um, a commonality in everybody's reaction that at New College, they were prioritizing the people who are victimized by the ideology that I was spreading, that uh, they were circling the wagons around the people of color on campus and the Jewish students on campus who for a while were afraid to have public meetings because they were worried that other white nationalists were going to come here and they didn't know much about me. They didn't know whether it was necessarily safe for them to meet. And the reaction of shutting down the school, of condemning my beliefs was asserting that, you know, you are welcomed here, you are safe here. And the priority from the beginning uh, was never, you know, let's try to make the white nationalists feel comfortable so that we can try to talk some sense into him. It was, how is this going to uh, disrupt the education and the daily life of of our people, of our people on this campus who are part of our community? And that, that was even true of Allison, who was the primary person who had those those quiet conversations who I met at Shabbat and tried to talk me out of it and say, what is your evidence and dismiss it. She didn't know whether it was right for her to go into those conversations to begin with because shouldn't she be protesting? You know, shouldn't she be saying loudly as a, as a white person that I condemn this and I'm on the side of the people who are who are victimized by this belief system? And that's a commonality between everybody's reaction was prioritizing people who are hurt. Uh, Allison, the real hero of the book, in my opinion, I have to say. Yep. So she continues to be your partner, right? Yep. What does she make of the the book, I guess, in general, but also like where you are now in in, in terms of your conversation with the rest of the country? I think she, somewhat like me, is still a little bit bewildered that the consequence of us feeling like we we need we need to speak out in some way that 
I condemned white nationalism several years ago, and that's not enough. I still need to continually speak out against it or else white supremacy will, as it exists in America, won't get pushed back. And I think she's still a little bewildered that we have a voice that we need to speak about. And we're both trying to figure out where is the right place to do that and what room should we be listening rather than speaking and uh, how do we use that platform and, you know, both of us have day jobs as graduate students that we have to dedicate our time to. And so trying to figure out what's the most effective thing and what is it that people whose voices are not quite as loud need us to say, you know, that's, that's most of what we talk about when we're thinking of how we can try to do some kind of good. I, I, I think I spent sort of um, a ton of time, obviously, with Derek uh, while I was reporting the book um, and also a huge amount of time with Allison. And and one thing that I think is just important to emphasize is that um, people, like now in retrospect, the fact that Derek changed his beliefs, it seems like a given. But over the course of these two and a half years um, on this campus, even for people who really cared about him, like Allison, it wasn't a given. Like they they did not know where this was going to end up. Um, and and so I think, you know, part of part of it for her during that time was this real uncertainty and also sometimes self-doubt about trying to figure out were were the things that she was doing, were they having an effect? Um, were they impacting his thinking? Uh, and, and you know, it was not a straight line, right? It's um, changing such a fundamental part of your identity takes a lot of time. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, my sense in spending time with Allison um, and in also in reading all of their messages during those years to each other um, was this real sense of just hoping that it was going to work out, um, but never quite knowing uh, until eventually it did. So I mentioned before we started the interview that I have a very sort of smaller version of this experience in my life, which is that I fell in love with a guy who's a Republican. And (laughs) one very different thing is that I didn't know that when I fell in love with him. We met uh, when we were in recovery. So we knew each other's darkest secrets, but we didn't know each other's political beliefs. Um, But one thing that I found with John um, was that at first we fought a lot about it when we we realized we we felt so differently. But after we decided we were going to prioritize our relationship over being right in an argument, that's when we really started to listen to each other. And I'm wondering if that sort of letting go of things is something that happened in your relationship with Allison. Like I sort of hear it in Eli's description, which is to say, you didn't know how things were going to turn out, right? Neither of you. You just continued talking. Like, was that important to feel like she wasn't necessarily like trying to convert you, but she was just in dialogue with you? Uh, it's complicated. Um, and I, I think it's something that we still sort of think about how, how that went. Like Eli said, that it was never a guarantee that having these conversations or Matthew inviting me to Shabbat was going to lead to any sort of, you know, quote unquote success. Right. Mm-hmm. And the way that Allison approached it was uh, initially just because she knew that nobody else on campus was asking me about this belief system I held or why I held it or what was my evidence for it. And uh, she had an access point because I was coming to her dorm because she was roommates with Matthew, who was hosting the Shabbat dinners. And uh, it we started, you know, hanging out after she initially was avoiding the dinners because she didn't want to uh, go to something that I was there. And uh, her her initial questions were, 
can we talk about this? And then after that, what do you believe? Because she had a lot of assumptions about white nationalism and she knew she was opposed to it, but she didn't necessarily have uh, a comprehensive knowledge about race science and how to disprove white nationalist talking points. And so a lot of it at the beginning was, uh, it was quiet and it was trusting and it was, uh, I, I will explain to you what I believe. And uh, I'll tell you, this is the same thing I say to other white nationalists. And then over time, that became, you know, once every five conversations where we need to talk about this because she was trying to convince me I was wrong. It wasn't uh, just, oh, you know, you believe something and I believe something. It was uh, you believe something that's wrong and that is hurting friends of mine. But there's also something about you that doesn't quite make sense. You know, she she felt sort of comfortable even beginning these conversations because I was willing to listen and say, you know, what, what do you believe is wrong about this? And she knew that I was uh, one of my closest friends on campus was uh, a Latino man and that I was coming to the Shabbat dinners every week. And so she knew that she was safe to ask these questions and have these conversations, but she was never, uh, she was never tolerant of it in the sense that it's fine if you continue to believe this. It was always that this is wrong and I need to convince you of that. And in recent years, like the way she puts that is that if you care about someone and they believe something that you think is more than just incorrect, but wrong, you know, morally wrong, you kind of have an obligation if they're willing to talk to you about it to convince them that that's the case. And that's how she approached it. You know, if you care about someone and they... Uh, there's some big disagreement that you think is unethical. It, it, it's the wrong choice to say, well, I'll just let you continue believing that, you know, and I, I won't try to make an effort to convince you otherwise. These days, you can get practically anything on demand like this podcast. Listen wherever you want, when it's convenient for you. I could do a whole list of other things you can get on demand from uh, car service uh, to you know, obviously food. Um, I'm trying to think of what else is disrupting. You can get like dog walkers on command, which is something I've been looking at lately. Anything. And you can also get everything that you would get at the post office on demand. Why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages when you can get the postage that you need on demand with stamps.com? I personally like to work at night. I'm a night owl. I do a lot of my best thinking and certainly actually um, am really good at doing kind of menial tasks at night. What I like to do is like put on a good podcast and then go through and like do my expenses or for instance, do my mailing. And I do that with stamps.com. I could not do that with the post office. You could listen to a podcast presumably, but you couldn't do it, you know, like at 11 o'clock at night. So buy and print any official postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer and the mail carrier picks it up. Just click print mail and you are done. It could not be easier. And right now you can use friends for a special offer, which includes up to $55 free postage, a digital scale and a four week trial. Don't wait, go to stamps.com. And before you do anything else, click on the podcast microphone, not radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in friends. That's stamps.com podcast microphone, enter friends. With Friends Like These is also brought to you by the upcoming film, The Front Runner, from Oscar-nominated director Jason Reitman, who brought us Thank You for Smoking, Juno, and Up in the Air. The Front Runner is based on the shocking, true events that changed the path of a nation. 
Oscar-nominee Hugh Jackman plays Gary Hart, the charismatic politician and overwhelming frontrunner for the 1988 presidential election. Senator Hart led George H.W. Bush in the polls by 13 points. Everyone was certain he would win. And then the world, as we know it, changed. And a private schedule became front-page headlines for the first time. The frontrunner is about the turning point in American history when privacy ended. And we, as a country, decided we have the right to know. Written by Matt Bai and Jay Carson, this is the scandal and the story that started it all. Bush 1, Bush 2, the Clinton impeachment, our 17-year war in Afghanistan. It all started with one scandal. So, two things to do on November 6th. You should vote. And then treat yourself to the front runner. Text FRONTRUNNER to 26797 to find your nearest polling place and to buy your tickets to see the front runner. Message and data rates may apply. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut. I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. I feel like I need to revise my description of what what we did, which is that I didn't, it wasn't necessarily that I stopped trying to convince him, but more it's the letting go part, which is that I stopped thinking that that was like the point of our conversations. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is I feel like when people come from such different ideologies, no one has ever actually really argued into changing their minds, right? Like, yeah. You can't, like, browbeat someone into changing an entire ideology. Totally. It has to be more of, okay, here's what I believe. Here's why I think what you believe is incorrect, but I'm going to let go of the outcome of this conversation. Yeah, I, I think I think that's really, um, I think it's that's a really interesting point because, you know, unless you let go, right, like, like you were saying with your husband that until you sort of decided that, you know, you were the relationship was going to happen, right? You guys were going to be together. Uh, it was, that was the priority. And, and you know, no matter how bad any fight got, uh, like that space was still going to be the space that you two were in. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think my experience of, um, you know, of, of reading a lot of these um, really sometimes intense and emotional 
arguments and debates that Derek and Allison would have um, was very similar because like unless you, you know, the things that they were talking about were so emotionally fraught because Allison wasn't just saying to Derek, hey, you were wrong about uh, what you were saying about racial differentials with IQ scores. She was saying, you are causing huge damage, not just in people's lives, but in the lives of people on this campus that you care about. And, you know, and that's a really hard thing to hear. And probably, unless you've decided you're somebody I really care about, I'm prioritizing this relationship, if you have that fight, uh, you might not have a conversation again, right? And so <laughs> right. there were periods still where I know Derek and Allison those 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 moments got so emotional and and so tense that then you know Derek would need a few days or a little time to recover, um, but cared enough about Allison and and prioritized that relationship enough that he was always coming back. Um, and and then when the next when the next big emotional conversation happened, it could happen and they could come back again. Um, and I think it's hard to do that unless you've decided this is somebody I really care about regardless. Um, and this is a, a relationship that I'm going to invest myself in regardless. I also feel like I need to add for anyone that might be listening to just this episode is that John is no longer a Republican. <laughs> uh, and it is, of and course, Derek a much— is, Derek is no longer a white nationalist. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And then also, I will say that one—I don't know if it's an irony or not, but uh, it was Trump that, that wind up being a tipping point for John, which is that when Trump's popularity started to spike— like, I just remember really vividly, like, him looking at the at the television and turning to me and saying, like, if this is what being a Republican means, then I'm not sure I'm a Republican anymore. Yeah. I think I'd also like to observe at this moment that I, one of my main priorities is trying to convince people, uh, you know, depending on, depending on who's listening, you may be surprised that lots of people do not think that racial discrimination uh, and advantage for white people is prevalent in America. Mm. Like this is, there is a large portion of Americans who just don't, don't believe it uh, and convince them not only that white supremacy exists as a system in America and we need to push back against it for fairness, uh, but that that should be a priority for the well-being of our country. And I get really concerned that uh, right now it feels like it's becoming a political issue to be anti-racist. You know, it feels like being opposed to racial injustice is starting to feel like that's a leftist position and that uh, conservatives are supposed to be fine with, uh, with preserving the racial inequity in America. And I think that's a very dangerous situation. I don't think it is 100%, and I don't think that Conservatives have to have to believe that, and I think that conservatism has to be separate and has to separate itself from talking points that sound like white nationalism, and that anti-racism cannot become a political issue. Uh, and I, I think that's one of the most alarming things about modern America is that it feels like it is becoming one. I think you're optimistic to to put that in a tent moving forward. I think it has <laughs> become one. Unfortunately, that's true. But they're coming from the background I've come from. I know that there is a difference between uh, Republican politicians, including the president, saying things like, oh, we want more immigrants from Norway and we want fewer from Africa and couching it in those language in that language. And the difference between that and uh, a Republican president saying we want more white people here, like that, that is a line that we could cross and we, we cannot cross. And we could still, yeah. I mean, 
it seems closer every day. I want to, we have limited time, so I want to make sure we get to something having to do with white privilege, which is, the book is great and fascinating, and, and both of you are such interesting characters, but I did have this sort of voice in the back of my head because I've talked to to so many uh, people concerned with racial justice and people concerned with the spread of you know white supremacy. One thing that they talk about a lot is the way that journalism about white supremacy tends to privilege the stories of white people, which is to say, like it's Derek's story that seems really important, right? Like I had Arjun Sethi on. He he edited a book of essays by people who've been victims of hate crimes. And he talks about how we don't hear those stories very often. And Eli, I want to make very clear, it's not that you shouldn't have written this book or you should have written a different book, but I'm just curious what you think of that criticism. Sure. Yeah. I, I, uh, Arjun's book, I think is great by the way. And we were, we were on a panel together talking about this stuff in New York a few weeks ago. Um, you know, I, I think it's, uh, that was one of the reasons to me that it was very important that this was a reported book that um, I hope feels like at various parts, it comes from a lot of different people's perspective. Um, of course, Derek's transformation is the through line. Like that's, uh, he is centered in the narrative because it's his transformation. Um, but at various points in the book, we are reading about uh, James Birmingham's perspective or all of these other students' perspective in the ways that they feel impacted by his presence on that campus. Um, I also think that sometimes like, the problem with a lot of our journalism about uh, you know, white supremacy or or the white nationalist movement in the country is that we write about it um, without challenging it. And I don't mean that in saying that we should be writing polemics saying that white nationalism is bad. Um, but in our stories about this ideology, like we also have to write about the real damage, both historical and present, that it's caused in people's lives. Um, and Derek's story, the fact that he emerges on the other side and the fact that he emerges on the other side because of everything that all of these other people on the campus are doing to impact him, it makes the whole narrative a challenge to the ideology, um, both in terms of its science, its history, uh, and its impact on people's lives. Um, so, you know, my hope in the kind of work that I do is that, you know, the challenge to the ideology is borne out through reporting um, and, and through exposing the things that this movement has done in the world over the last, you know, 50 years and more, and, and also through showing how it was impacting people on that campus when Derek was there. Yeah, and, and I think my answer to that is that I, I think about this a lot, that, that there's a very real way that you're you're dealing with, uh, uh, like, basically white supremacy in America, that it is the fact that people would want to hear that a publisher will publish a book about a white nationalist who stopped being white nationalist uh, instead of a book about people who are victimized by white nationalism. And uh, like that, that in a lot of ways, that's sort of an indictment of society. And it's something that I have to think about whenever I'm agreeing to do something. And it's sort of why I say no to more things than I say yes to, because I don't always know whether it's, uh, whether there's something else going on that, People want to hear from some white person, you know, who might make them feel better rather than people who, uh, you know, are, are, are living, uh, living the effects of racism in America. And I think in the case of uh, working with Eli, one of the reasons we knew it would be good was because people would come in because that's the kind of book that would get written. It wouldn't be a book about the people who are victims at New College, but uh, about the white nationals who changed his mind. But then you would come in 
and then all these other voices would be present. And that's sort of how I try to approach basically everything I do is to figure out how other voices that might not get heard can come in because people want to hear something about this salacious story of my life. Yeah. And, and I would also say, you know, as, as a, a journalist at the Washington Post, I think if, if we are telling ourselves that, um, you know, it is the media that, uh, and attention that is growing racist ideas and, and white nationalist rhetoric in the country, like we're, we're kidding ourselves. Um, it is, it is a huge, uh, and, and powerful force, not only, not only in this moment, but also like these white supremacist ideas, unfortunately are endemic to what this country has always been. And they're still a foundational piece of many of our primary structures in the country, whether that's the criminal justice system or the education system or anything else. And so unless we're writing about this ideology, unless we're, we're, we're doing the work of reporting on it, um, I'm not sure how we can expect our country to be educated about it uh, and then to figure out what to do about it. I guess there's an anecdote that I would give that I think sort of shows the, the disconnect between how white nationalists see themselves and their success in you know recruiting and spreading their message and how the mainstream, you know, so-called mainstream has has seen it is is the election of Barack Obama. Like that the night that Obama was elected was the night that my dad's website Stormfront got more traffic than it had ever received before. And the during the years that Barack Obama was president, it was a constant stream of growth and members and donations and people becoming more radicalized to white nationalism. And I sort of observed at that time, because during the first half of that, I was still committed to my family's movement, was that the movement, uh, that the media would talk about post-racial America and racism on the, on the uh, uh, receding and on, on an outgoing tide and that we had moved forward and white nationalists saw it as their greatest moment to grow and to expand. I guess I'd push back just a, a bit, Eli, on the idea that I don't blame the media for the growth of white nationalism, but I'm wondering, are you familiar with uh, Whitney Phillips' work, The Oxygen of Amplification? I am, that, yep. Yeah. So I'm curious, actually, that what Derek might think of this thesis, which is the coverage of, of white supremacists, the coverage of the white nationalist movement, that most journalists tend to assume the criticism is built in. I, I think the best case study of this is the coverage of Richard Spencer, fellow University of Chicago alum, uh, that people kind of like wrote about him as though readers would realize this guy is obviously hateful. Um, but right. that her her kind of report kind of takes it as that what white nationalists saw and potential white nationalists saw was just awesomeness in this, like the dapper, you know, Nazi. Yeah, I mean, I— uh... Derek, I, I'd be curious on your thoughts too. I mean, I, I think I also have seen a lot of coverage like that and been troubled by it. Um, you know, there was a a story that I think got really deserved blowback in in media circles anyway, um, in a major newspaper last year about sort of a a white nationalist in Ohio. Um, I think it was Ohio, and and the point of the story seemed to sort of be like, oh, they're like white nationalism is sort of normal now. There are white nationalists everywhere. Like, look, here's a white nationalist. He also likes to go to Applebee's. Uh, they also get married. Um, you know, it. Was uh, the story was just this sort of 
basic profile of like here is here is an ideology that's spreading and they're kind of like us um which was a hugely problematic story because there was nowhere in that story was uh was the was the presence of what white nationalism actually is which when you break it down what white nationalists want what they think should happen is that people of races however they conceive of that um which they even now have trouble doing but people of different races should be separated onto different continents uh no matter what damage that causes to their families, to their lives, to culture, to whatever else, um, which is a horrific endpoint, right? And so in in that story about this white nationalist, nowhere was there a neighbor who was thinking, you know, what, what does this ideology mean for me? Nowhere was there a sense of the history of what this person actually believed and what it meant for the world. Um, so, you know, I think when we, and, and you're right, that a lot of the Richard Spencer coverage uh, is similar. I think it's the idea of like, here's a guy who's nicely dressed and uh, and runs a think tank. Um, and, you know, just just by that, we're, we're normalizing it a little bit. Um, so I think we, we definitely need to do much, much better um, as journalists in terms of representing the people uh, who are damaged by the ideology and, and also the historical damage that, that it has caused and continues to cause. Derek, what do you think? I, I, I'm curious too. Yeah, yeah. My answer to it is, uh, is is very similar and it comes from being in the position that Richard Spencer is in where my experience of that is I had a Rolodex of journalists at major newspapers and TV networks and uh, different you know, podcasts and that whenever there was some sort of event that seemed vaguely related to white nationalism, the, something, some march in Germany or some some event, some Tea Party event, all these people who you know felt like collaborators in the worst case would call me up and they would say, you know, here's Derek Black's comment on this. He's so mild mannered and polite, and yet he believes this crazy, horrendous ideology. And then they would quote me. And I would say, oh, well, what's all white Americans believe, dot, dot, dot. And, you know, they're just afraid to say it. And they would let me get my message out. And they would write this story. And they would feel like it was going to get some readership and that it was going to be salacious. And then we would say, you know, talk to you next time. And I would say, you know, thanks. And they'd say, oh, it's always good to talk to you. Hmm. And that was my experience a lot of times. Not, not always, but that was my experience with a lot of journalism at a lot of really mainstream newspapers and, uh, and mainstream, uh, mainstream uh, avenues. And that's not good. <laughs> that's not how it should be. And then a lot of times it still is like that. Yeah, it, it's 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 not good. I also think it's um, you know it's it's something that we should be cognizant that it's it's uh, this is something that that white nationalists have done uh, purposefully to affect. Like this is part of the effect of their very intentional professionalization of the movement uh, over not just years but decades. I mean, I think Derek's 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 godfather, David Duke, was one of the he was one of the first people to really master this. And if you look back at old clips of of David Duke in the eighties, um, who really had just come out of running the Klan, uh, when he was running for office, he would go on on all of these mainstream TV shows, and they would marvel at how how smart he was, how intellectual he was, uh, how charming he could be. Um, you know, and and that is uh, is a catastrophic uh, journalism failure in terms of our coverage of this. So I actually just ordered some more sheets from Brooklyn, and they sent a uh, free set because I get to try them out before I uh, give you a testimonial. And we tried them out, and my husband loves them. They are the sateen kind of sheets. They have like a um, almost slickness to them. They're very, very soft. And uh, we're also a couple that likes lots of pillows. And Brooklyn sent a set, but they didn't send enough for all of our pillows. 
so I bought some more pillowcases because I like them so much. Um, and I wanted to use them with some of the other sheet sets that we have. And I, I paid full price on everything. Brooklinen does give you that incredible feeling of fancy hotel sheets, which is exactly what the husband and wife team behind them set out to do when they started the company. The pair didn't think it should be so difficult and expensive to get luxury sheets at home, so they made it their mission to bring five-star hotel-quality sheets to everyday life at an affordable price. Most bedding is marked up as much as 300%, but by taking the middleman out of the equation and delivering directly to the customer, Brooklinen is able to give you luxury sheets without that luxury markup. And the sheets don't just feel great, they look great too. And you can choose from a variety of colors and materials. And don't just take my word for it, Brooklinen has more than 20,000 five-star reviews. My Brooklyn sheets are the best, most comfortable sheets I've ever slept on. They are really good. Brooklinen.com is giving an exclusive offer to my listeners right now. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use the promo code FRIENDS at Brooklinen.com. Okay, I'll be totally honest. I did use my own promo code when I ordered the new pillowcases. But you can use it too. $20 off and free shipping when you use the promo code FRIENDS at Brooklinen.com. Brooklinen is so sure you'll love your new sheets. They offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all their sheets and comforters. And the only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use that promo code FRIENDS at Brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Promo code FRIENDS. Brooklinen. These really are the best sheets ever. Bombas are the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. Bombas has totally re-engineered socks with comfort innovations that add up to one of the most comfortable socks you will ever put on. Two years of research and development led to multiple improvements of the sock design, performance, and comfort. There's an arch support system that feels like a hug around your foot. There's a cushioned footbed. There's stay-up technology. 133 tension levels were tested to find the perfect tension that's comfortable, that stays in place, doesn't leave a mark. There's a seamless toe. They got rid of that annoying toe bump, that thing, the seam. You can just wiggle your toes around and you will feel the difference. And of course, super soft cotton you'll never want to take off. Just as important, one pair sold equals one pair donated. Socks are the number one most requested item in homeless shelters, but you cannot donate used socks. That's why Bombas donates one brand new pair of socks for every pair that they sell. To date, they've sold and donated over 9 million pairs. Bombas are engineered comfort for everyone's every day. Whatever you love to do, there's a pair of Bombas that'll add comfort to your life as you do it. They're created for runners, power walkers, power loungers, low-key fashionistas, snowboarders, business sharks, business casual sharks, people who prefer the outdoors, people who prefer Netflix and chill, overall lovers of everyday comfort. They're awesome socks. I am actually more of a Netflix and chill person than a real like run around and do stuff, but I do actually run. And I can feel the difference in the socks when I run. It's the arch support thing that actually makes more of a difference uh, than the, the cushioning. Um, my, my feet feel a little less tired after I get done with a run. And also the stay up technology is good. Um, I like the socks to stay up when I run. And if you're a friends like these listener, you can try out these socks for 20% off your first order. If you go to bombas.com slash friends, that's B-O-M-B-A-S.com slash friends and your friends at checkout and you'll get 20% off your first order. Bombas.com slash friends and code friends. I have one, one more question for Derek. Um, I'm curious if there's anything you miss about your old life. Like, obviously, I'm, I'm not, uh, none of the ideology, but, you know, you were a, a performer. You did speeches in front of crowds. You had a talk radio show. You wrote prolifically and got a lot of feedback on it. 
And obviously your family was a huge part of it. Like, do you miss any of that? I think I miss having a close relationship with my family, being able to talk about anything and to feel like we were together and that we were, uh, we always help each other and that we were, you know, fighting for the same thing and that we were activists and, and all the stuff that goes with that. Uh, and and I, I wish that there was not this rift where they believe something and that's what keeps the family together. So if I don't believe it and I actively am opposed to it, that it means that I can't be fully part of the family. And, uh, you know, in that way, I, I, I miss that. But it's not... It's not enough to to make uh, to to make the the values of pushing against it. You know, it's not enough to overwhelm the values of pushing against it. It's just a sort of a a sad moment that I, I wish didn't have to be like that. Eli, one final question for you too. I'm curious what writing this book did for you. Did it change anything that you thought or open your eyes to something? Yeah, it did. Um, you know, I, I think. Uh, probably maybe like you sort of say that most readers um, initially approach the book. I mean, I, I thought when I first heard about Derek, um, you know, I, I thought maybe this would be a story about, uh, you know, sort of the power of, of a personal transformation. Um, and, and you know, partially it is that. Uh, but what I learned through reporting the book um, is also something much darker, which is just how much of this ideology still informs what our country is um and and sort of uh you know how how much it is rising around us um you know and, and in some ways i think the reason after you know much back and forth and thinking about it um that derek sort of decided to spend so much time with me for the book um and and probably the reason that he's continuing to become more public in it now uh, is that especially in this moment like when when it is you know when it's when it's rising in this way um being being silent about it, I think, for all of us, uh, is is not enough. I mean, it's basically being complicit. Um, and when when we when we see the evidence of these ideas all around us, I think we have to do whatever we can in our own lives to confront them in in whatever way we have the power to do that. Um, so you know, I think the book is is a result of that on on Derek's part. Um, you know, and and I hope a small bit on my part as well. So that is it for me. But I always want to make sure that we everything gets covered to my guest satisfaction as well. Do either of you have anything you want to touch on before we sign off? Um, nothing that comes to mind. I, you know, I, I appreciate being able to come on here and talk about it because I, I, I agree with Eli's last sentiment that there's, there's so much that white nationalists see as their entry point to being successful that is reflected in things that so many people believe. And it's like a legacy of America. And I think we don't always like to look at that. There are moments like a tree of life at Pittsburgh where we see these moments of horrendous violence that are coming out of that belief system. But most of the time we try to look away from it. And so I appreciate being being allowed on here to to talk about something that I think is very important. Eli? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I have a question for you, uh, oh, but uh, okay. but I don't know if it's uh, if if you want to talk about it more on the show or not. But I, I'm just curious um, when you talked about John and sort of uh, you know like him coming to this this moment of awareness because of some of the things that President Trump was saying. Like as I think about sort of the process of transformation and how it happens, I wonder like how much of bringing about that moment you feel like you were in his life and like mm. the conversations that you had with him over the years before that were and, and how much it would have happened anyway without you. Well, if you have time, I'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah, um, I definitely have time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I'm curious about it. So part of this is his story, and he promises that he's going to come on the show sometime and talk about it. So, but until then, um, <laughs> I feel like maybe the best way to put it is I don't think he would have come to the place that he did without having me in his life, for sure. But also he chose to have me in his life, right? right? So there was some possibility in him. There was something in him that was open to change. And I mean, I look at it this way. So like I said, we met when we were in like in recovery. And by the way, don't start dating early in recovery. That's a bad idea, but we did it anyway. Um, <laughs> Probably fuels intense relationships, I would imagine. <laughs> it does. And it's usually terrible, but we've been very lucky. Um, I have seven years of sobriety. He has six. So we're doing all right. Congratulations. But, um, That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Uh, but I mean, I feel like for me, it was a real, like, I, I, I don't want to claim, you know, quote unquote credit for it because it, there had to be something in him that would change. Right. Right. And I think something in him that wanted to change, like, so he comes from a very conservative background, again, as a matter of scale, not nearly as conservative as Derek, but, you know, uh, his parents are Trump supporters, um, wealthy people who live in the New Jersey suburbs. You know, he was raised in an all white, you know, milieu, uh, went to college at Villanova where, you know, unless you're on the basketball team, <laughs> not going to see a lot of people of color. Um, right. And he had a lot of just assumptions about the world including gender relationships, by the way. Like his mom was a stay-at-home mom. His sisters are both like, you know, very traditional women. And one of the hardest things in our relationship was like, and he had to deal with it right away, was that I wasn't going to change anything about myself, right? Um, And I had very strong opinions about everything, (laughs) you know, not just um, politics, but like I'm not going to be someone that like lets him take the lead, in any kind right. of decision-making process. And so that was kind of an early hurdle. And I feel like almost that's the most important one is that he saw me as an equal in a way that I'm not sure he was totally raised to do. And that that is what opened the door for further kinds of changes. Right. Like he took me seriously, you know. And, and that was, was it bumpy or he took you seriously quickly? It was pretty bumpy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, we had some big blowouts about politics and also about language. Uh, you know, I agree, you know, with Derek, maybe we all agree here that like this little things and you know, microaggressions, little instances of sexism, minor instances, so-called minor instances of racism are actually really important. Right. And um, like we had a huge fight uh, when he called someone a bitch once. Hmm. And I just was like... You can't use that word in my presence. Yeah. And he, you know, <laughs> why not? <laughs> and we had a whole, oh, and also like, I think we had a similar kind of fight about the word slut. And um, both of those fights kind of ended with him saying, I can use whatever language I want. And me saying, okay, you can, but I'm going to leave the room. Like, right. it's going to be pretty lonely for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in a way, like, it comes back to, like, but he wanted to stay in the relationship. He wanted to have a conversation, right? Yep. So yeah. he kept coming back, and I kept coming back. Right. That's, uh, this This is making me really hope that he, uh, he comes on the podcast. And, <laughs> I, mean, I, I think that's—it's sort of like another thing that people— uh, 
I feel like sometimes maybe misunderstand or just, we have a desire to simplify things obviously for ourselves, but, um, you know, people, people want transformations, uh, even, even big ones to happen quickly, which is just, mm-hmm. um, it's not reasonable. Like it, it's hard, it's hard to admit that you're wrong about anything, right? Even something like, um, using the word bitch or slut, like that's, uh, to sort of acknowledge that, wait, I'm doing something that, um, that has, has some real meat behind it and it's hurtful and has some problematic ideas behind it. That even that takes time, right? So it's just like impacting somebody's thinking. Um, and, and even that, like, saying impacting somebody's thinking, it doesn't give enough agency to, to, to John or to Derek or to anybody who's in the process of like, th- you know, rethinking their own ideas. Um, but it, it's, that is such a long road. I think it just, um, it requires a lot of time sometimes. And for people on the other side, it just requires a huge amount of patience. And you have to decide what your limits are, you know? Um, like, I don't think I could have dated Derek, right? Sorry, right. Derek. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, Allison didn't for so long. You know, when I, when I asked her to at the time, she said, no, you know, I'm not right. going to date somebody who does this. You know, we can, we can be, we can talk, we can be friends. I, I think, uh, you know, building on that, right, it, you know, we are, we're all very smart people who make our own choices and we believe things because we've thought them through and yada, yada, on and on. But then when it really comes down to it, nobody is not, it, nobody makes their choices outside of the relationships they have with other people. You know, I, I very firmly believe that we're all, we all think we're these brilliant automatons that think about things and come to conclusions, but we, everybody, you know, the most brilliant genius in the world who thinks through all their evidence comes to conclusions because they hear ideas from people and they have to be willing to listen to the ideas and they have to be respectful of the person enough that they can hear it. Uh, you know, it's true for me. It's true for, it sounds like it's true for John. I think it's true pretty universally that we, we think about things because of the relationships and the communities and who we consider part of our, uh, part of our lives. Totally. Yeah. And that's sort of the problem with the idea that we can, that, that the binary of like reach out a hand or, or punch, I guess, (laughs) um, it's never that simple. The condemnation is, I think, fits into that, like condemning people asserting values is, your community saying something about, you know, how they, what they think about your ideas, what they think about, uh, you know, what you're saying and the impact of what you're saying. And I, I feel like this is on a, a spectrum of, you know, uh, community assertion of its, uh, of its relationship with you. And it's, it takes different forms. You know, sometimes it's a close personal or even romantic relationship. And sometimes it's a community protest against the fact that you're speaking. You know, the, these, are, these are different forms of who do I associate with and who am I listening to and different levels of respect. Right. Well, and also sometimes like it's, it's the only thing that you can do. Like somebody, uh, when I was talking about the book, Earlier this week at an event, somebody asked, you know, so like if I'm, you know, what do you think about the people who uh, at a restaurant, you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders comes in and and they 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 make a stand uh, and and say like you have to leave the restaurant, um, you know, and like in that situation, it's not like if you're the waiter at that restaurant or you're the owner of the restaurant, you can come and sit down at the table and have like a impactful conversation that's going to begin to impact her thinking about some of this stuff. Like you're only, 
you don't have that many options, right? And and I think in Derek's case, that was something uh, that like a lot of the the people of color on campus felt like they they didn't feel like they could go up to Derek for the most part and have conversations about this because some of them were afraid. Some of them, um, they knew the power imbalance in those conversations didn't favor them. For them, these were like really personal and emotional issues. And for Derek, he could be just pragmatic about them. Um, so the ways that they could have effect were, were much different. Like, I, I think it's uh, so much of it just comes down to like what you have the ability to do and maximizing whatever that is in the brief moments that we have the chance. Yeah, yeah totally. I was, I, was, I was visiting a college last week and somebody asked like, oh, if we protest and say we condemn a speaker or a fellow student or something, won't they just clam up and never listen to anybody and become more extreme? And like that, that is a reaction. That is part of the reaction I had when I was condemned. You know, I organized a, a white nationalist uh, teaching seminar, right? Like that was my first reaction to being condemned. But on a practical level, you know, if there's somebody saying something dehumanizing on your campus or in your workplace or wherever, most people, when you hear that, what is your point of contact? It is to assert to your coworkers or your fellow students or the people who live in your neighborhood that that's against our values. That's against what I believe. And I think it's wrong for these reasons. Uh, and if you happen to be living in a dorm where that person's coming over and you uh, know you're safe to do so, then perhaps you should you're feel you should feel obligated to engage in some way. But most people, most of the time, most of our lives, what is our point of contact? It is uh, to assert values and circle the wagons around people who are threatened who we care about. Yeah, I, I, for what it's worth, I, I agree. Yeah, I think that confrontation has to be a part of the equation, right? Because... Yeah, it was so important in your personal journey. And also it gives agency to the people, right, who need to be protected. It also tells them that they're the ones that matter and that I'm going to take like, so I, as a white person, I'm going to take this risk for you by confronting someone who you may not feel safe confronting, you know? Yep. There's social science research behind that too, that people tend to listen more carefully to a person, you know, of uh, similar social standing, whether it's a man talking to another man about sexism or a white person talking to another white person about racism. Like, uh, we have this obligation to talk to other people who are in a similar privilege group as us to try to reach them in ways that people who are being victimized by that, by that system, you know, don't always get heard. This is probably the best part of the conversation. I'm sorry to say, all my like carefully <laughs> planned questions, like That's we're no, good. No problem. <laughs> I, feel, I, I feel like this will be this will be prep for your the podcast with your husband should be like a six hour a six hour series. I feel like That's, I that that one that one could go long. When that episode comes out, I'm going to be so excited. <laughs> <laughs> he's just not. Might listen to that one on 1.5. Sorry, he, he is. Um, he's just not as public as I am, right? Like, right, and. I think also it will be interesting to see sort of hear his his part of it. We're all still sort of in the process of becoming, you know, I mean, that's just mm-hmm. the way it is. Like, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm sure I know it's true for me. I'm sure in some ways it's still true for for Derek. Like we're, you know, the, the transformation is like it's not like it ever hits this like end point of uh, of hyper awareness. And then we figured all of it out. I mean, one of the great gifts of reporting on this book for me is that I learned you know, through writing a book about uh, white nationalism. I learned so much more um, about, you know, uh, social justice in the country. And, um, you yeah, know, this book was part of that journey for me. Like, it was um, it was a great gift in that way. Yeah, I, I sort of think of the f- introduction to Ibram Kendi's book about race, the history of racist ideas, where he talks about before I started researching for this book, I, w- I had 
racist ideas of, and he's he's a black guy and he's like i had racist ideas about uh about racism in america and i had to challenge my own assumptions about the world i lived in and how i was interacting with it by doing that research which i was trying to educate other people and i educated myself we always have to be open to that i have one of the privileges of doing this show actually you know is a. Uh, is I, is I get to be intentional about this journey in a way that most people don't have the privilege of doing. Yeah. You know? yeah. I uh, thank you for talking to me. I hope that our conversation becomes less timely in a week. Um, uh, there's some, some kind of pushback on, on what's happening. Uh, but until then, you guys, thank you so much. Thanks again for what you do. Appreciate you being so thoughtful and taking so much time with all this. And that is it for the show. I haven't given the email for the show in a while, so I will give it to you now. It is withfriendslikepod at gmail.com, and we will return to answering listener questions soon, very soon. I promise uh, things have been a little hectic lately. Perhaps they've been hectic for you as well. And because of the way the calendar is, it is probably just as likely that you will hear this show after the election as you will hear it before. But I have something to tell you that I think will be applicable no matter what side of the line we're on. It's something I wrote about on Twitter. It's basically restating a thread, which feels weird, but I'm going to do it anyway. And in fact, this is how it starts, that this has been said before, but it needs to be said every day. If you have ever wondered what you'd have done during the civil rights era, or if you would have stood up to fascism in Europe, well, history is watching you now. Not picking a side is the same as picking the wrong one. For me, after Trump won, I made a choice to be an advocate, to stop listening to the beltway echo in my head that sometimes still badgers me about journalistic objectivity. I don't want to tell my nieces in 30 years that while the country crumbled, I provided some great takes. So I've marched in rallies and I've given money to advocacy organizations. And this has no doubt limited my employment options for the future. It also makes me more hopeful for the future in general. It at least makes me feel like I've done more than watch it happen. And this is your power too. If you're a white person, especially, you are never actually on the sidelines of history. You are just enabling the existing systems. So do something. There is no greater joy than working to lift up others. It will sustain you. I promise. And I want to add that my role model in this, as in many other things, is my dad, Sam Cox who spent some rainy Fort Worth weekends marching in front of segregated movie theaters in his ROTC overcoat, and once earnestly marveled to me at how few other students joined him. I mean, he said, it was the right thing to do. So go forth and do the right thing. And that includes, please, taking care of yourselves. See you next week. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. 
But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Nike, Walmart, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you can get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 